In the vast tapestry of human history, two epic tales rise above the rest, the Enuma Elish and the Book of Genesis. From the swirling chaos of primordial waters to the birth of humankind, each tells a tale of creation, but are they simply two sides of the same coin, or worlds apart in meaning? Dive deep with us as we journey back in time, unraveling the mysteries and unveiling the similarities and contrasts of these ancient texts. Welcome to a cosmic exploration you won't forget. Hey everyone, this is Butcher Pastor and tell you today I went on with Eckhard Fromm. We're going to be talking about the Enuma Elish and Genesis 1-1, how they compare, how they contrast, and, and what does that mean for us? So how are we doing today, Dr. Fromm? I'm doing very well. Thank you for having me. Awesome. No, it's a pleasure to have such a prestigious scholar like yourself. So uh, can you give uh, people that maybe aren't as familiar with you a little bit about your background? Right. Yeah. So I'm a professor in Near Eastern Languages and Civilizations at Yale University. My background, however, is uh, German, as you may have surmised from my from my accent. Um, so I studied uh, Assyriology, that is uh, this, you know, the field that deals with cuneiform writing and ancient Mesopotamian civilizations and languages at the universities of Heidelberg and Göttingen, where I got my uh, PhD. I came to the States in 2002. And ever since then, I have been at Yale. My particular field of interest is Babylonia and Assyria um, during the first millennium BCE. I'm particularly interested in the history of ancient Assyria. I just actually published a book about the Assyrian Empire. But I've also occasionally dabbled in this uh, important question of possible links between Mesopotamia and the world of the Bible. I've written a few articles about that, so I hope I'm not entirely misplaced here in this podcast. Oh, no, you'll fit right in. So, uh, you know, many people are obviously familiar with the, the Genesis account, you know, whether you're religious or not, almost all people have heard a little bit about it. But could you tell us about Enuma Elish? Like, what is it? What is its background? The, the summary of the story? Any important details there? Yeah, just perhaps to clarify that right away, um, there are, of course, two creation accounts in Genesis. Um, the second one is the famous story of uh, the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve. And the one we will be talking about today, I guess, will be the first one, which is in Genesis 1 to Genesis 2, verse 4. That's the one where God creates the world in seven days with uh, culminating in the creation of human beings. Um, and that's the one that's actually uh, been compared, not only by me, but uh, already during the 19th century, um, that's been compared to a Babylonian myth uh, known from clay tablets, quite a few of them, uh, from Babylon, but also from many other cities, including cities in Assyria, uh, that tells us in seven chapters, um, written on seven tablets, um, the epic tale of uh, how the world came into being and how eventually uh, a Babylonian god, the god Mardo, created it in such a way that it became what how we how we know it today. So the the epic begins with with a kind of theogony, cosmogony. It tells the story of how how the first gods came into being. Um, and it came into being sort of from a union of two watery uh, creatures. On one hand, Tiamat, um, 
who represents the salt water, the sea. And on the other hand, a deity named Apsu, who is the sweet water horizon, they mingle their waters together. Tiamat in this process is somehow helped by yet another entity named Momo. Maybe we will get back to him too later on. And from this mingling of their waters emerge the first generations of proto-deities. These aren't really yet the gods and goddesses who would later on be worshipped in Mesopotamian temples. They are primeval deities. Their names are Ansha and Kisha, Lachmu and Lacham. And eventually from those then emerge later generations of gods uh, who are actually worshipped, such as the god Anu and the god Ea. Um, and the problem is that the later generations of, of gods, including Ea and Anu, um, actually make a lot of noise. And that very much annoys these earlier gods, especially Apsu and Tiamat. So you see here, outplaying a, a kind of generational conflict like that uh, you might have with any kind of teenager you have in your own home who's uh, listening to music that's too loud. That's kind of how it is presented. At any rate, uh, eventually, Apsu in particular is uh, sort of really uh, extremely angry about what's going on and he decides somehow against the will of Tiamat at this point to eliminate the younger gods. But those gods actually figure out what's going to happen and one of them, Ea, uh, by virtue of using magic, by um, reciting an incantation against Apsu, actually managed to defeat Apsu. Ea kills Apsu and then creates his own abode within this sweet water horizon represented by Apsu. And this quality of Tiamat Mumu, uh, at this point a vizier, a kind of advisor of Apsu and Tiamat, uh, becomes um, associated with this Apsu where Ea resides. And in this, in this subterranean water horizon, um, Apsu and his wife um, have a child, and that child is the god Marduk, the real hero. Because the first conflict that I've just outlined is just sort of a prequel to a much <clears throat> larger and more dramatic conflict that ensues now in the following. And that is um, a conflict between Tiamat and these younger gods. It's essentially, again, the same story. Marduk plays with the winds that he has been given by Anu, his grandfather. Um, and you can sort of imagine that uh, Tiamat being the sea, Marduk playing with the winds, uh, so he creates waves on the surface of the sea. Tiamat, this proto-deity, doesn't like that at all. And so now she decides that the younger gods have to die. And Tiamat is a much more formidable um, opponent, even though she's a woman, she's considered female, she is much more powerful than Apsu was. It's not enough anymore just to use magic against her, you have to really fight. And uh, two gods, uh, first Anu and then Ea, um, try this in vain. They are sent against Tiama to fight her, but they just don't have the courage to do it. And then Marduk steps up and says, okay, says that to the other younger gods, if you make me king of the gods, then I will actually go and fight Tiama. He does that sort of on the instigation of his father Ea. And the other gods agree to this condition. And so Marduk actually, this is now in the fourth chapter or tablet of this epic. Um, he, he mans his chariot, he, he has uh, arrows, he has a number of other weapons with him, and then he sends out his winds when he encounters Tiamat, and uh, the winds open up her mouth, and he shoots an arrow into that mouth, and in this way finally defeats her and kills her. This is the end of Tiamat. Tiamat, by the way, at this point is being uh, supported by a host of monsters uh, who have been created in the meantime of um, creatures with half human, half animal features 
we've supported her, uh, they are all defeated as well. And so is um, so a new husband that Tiamat has acquired at this time, a deity by the name of Kingu. And what then follows is kind of a second creation, the actual creation by Marduk. He splits Tiamat in two halves and creates with the upper one the heavens and with the lower one the earth. And then he sets up the heavenly bodies such as the moon and the sun. So light comes into being, the stars that serve as signs for uh, what's going to happen in the future. Um, he divides up uh, the year and into months and the months into days. Uh, so he creates the cosmos as we know it. And at the end, so to crown this uh, achievement of creation, um, he builds a city or has a city built by um, some gods who serve him. But he also realizes that, of course, uh, the gods shouldn't actually do all this work. And so uh, he, uh, together with his father, Ea, uh, creates human beings from clay, but also from the blood of this god, Kingu, who is being slaughtered for this purpose. And human beings are now supposed to work for the gods to provide them with sacrifices and all these things, especially so um, in the city of Babylon, where all the gods are now concentrated, where the great temple of Marduk is being built and where all the gods come together as well. So this is a centripetal movement towards Babylon uh, to worship Marduk. And at the very end of the text, Marduk receives from the other gods 50 names. And many of those names are actually the names of other great gods of the Mesopotamian pantheon. And by assuming these names, Marduk essentially becomes the, the, the great god who absorbs the qualities of all the other gods. There's almost of a, in the final analysis is a monotheistic quality to the whole story. Marduk um, really is the greatest of all gods, the gods, uh, the god um, who uh, combines the powers of all other gods. At the very end of the epic, um, it is stated that this epic should be told to everyone um, that uh, fathers should teach their sons its basic tenets that uh, even the shepherds in the fields should recite it, uh, indicating that this was meant to be a text uh, widely distributed. And indeed it was. I think that's important to keep in mind as well when talking about possible parallels in the Bible. We know that the Enomaelish was studied not only by priests and scholars, but also by students in Babylonian schools. We have literally hundreds of texts from Babylonian schools that include excerpts from this text written by those students in the elementary stages of the education. It was also recited during important uh, religious uh, rituals. So it's very clear that this text was um, widely known, that it was not an esoteric treatise only known to a few priests, but one that mm. was clearly the most important creation myth in first millennium Babylonia. Uh, even though it was not the only one, but far the most important one. Hmm. Wow, fascinating. Okay, uh, what about dating? When was this written? That's a good and difficult question. And in a way, um, archaeologists here have a problem similar to the problem that biblical scholars have when trying to date individual segments of the Hebrew Bible. This, of course, mm -hmm. is a very charged issue. We will talk about a little bit later as well when we talk about the creation account in the Bible. But um, what we know for sure is that there are documents in cuneiform tablets inscribed with the epic from most likely the 9th century BCE based on uh, the form of uh, the cuneiform signs from Assyria. It is very likely that the text was composed earlier. One 
hypothesis that uh, I think is still a good one, even though I'm not totally sure it's correct, is that it was composed in the 12th century BCE uh, after a king of Babylon by the name of Nebuchadnezzar I, not to be um, mistaken for the second Nebuchadnezzar, the one who sent the, Babylon, the Judeans into exile, so under Nebuchadnezzar the, the first, when the statue of Marduk um, had been um, godnapped by the Elamites, had been brought to Elam, and this Nebuchadnezzar had managed to get it back in a successful campaign against the Elamites and to celebrate this event. He, we know that for sure, created a number of religious texts celebrating his um, yeah, uh, political success and, and also uh, the greatness of his god Marduk. So it would make sense, as some scholars have assumed, that in the context of um, this yeah, moment in history, the Babylonian epic of creation was likewise composed. Some other scholars dated to earlier times, um, even so to the to the first half of the second millennium. But it must be said we simply have no evidence for for the text already having been known at this time, and we should have it because we have a lot of tablets from this period. So I think mm. it was probably composed in the late second millennium BC. I believe this is altogether the most likely scenario. And from then on, it was, as I mentioned, uh, it circulated widely throughout the ancient Near East. It was studied in Assyria, from where we have our earliest actual tablets. Um, and of course, then also in Babylonia, um, that is southern Iraq, uh, where uh, we have these many, many school texts from later periods. Very, very interesting. Okay, I, I, I had not heard that theory before. That's most of the people I've read just, I don't know, kind of assume that like it was probably much earlier, but I never actually heard another interpretation of that. That's unlikely because in earlier Mesopotamian theology, it is actually not the god Marduk, but rather the god Enlil, who's mm. credited with being the king of the gods, who's often also some way associated with creation. And it is only when Babylon becomes this leading city. Um, that happens for the first time under Hammurabi, uh, but this is probably still too early for the Indomai Elish. But it's only then that Marduk really rises to the head of the pantheon. Mm -hmm. So before that, it's extremely unlikely that such an epic would have been written. Hmm. But at the same time, it's possible that it could have been like a variation, right? Or you don't think that's likely either? Well, I do think, and I mean, this has been argued by many scholars, and I think rightly so, that the Indomai Elish takes up motifs from earlier epics. So there are epics celebrating this god Enlil, the first king of the gods in the Mesopotamian pantheon, and especially also his son, Enlil's son, Ninorta. And they ascribe to Ninorta a number of great feats of heroic uh, battles that Ninorta actually uh, had to wage against uh, chaotic forces, most importantly, uh, uh, a monstrous bird known as the Anzu bird. And it is very clear they are really literally uh, in direct uh, quotations from from this earlier from earlier texts about Ninorta fighting the Anzubert in the Babylonian epic of creation or the Inumaelish. It is very clear that the Inumaelish draws on this earlier mythology. But then what it does, and that's quite interesting, it describes both the god of the king, um, both the role of the king of the gods, initially held by Enlil, and the role of this heroic young warrior god, that's the role of Ninorta. It describes mm -hmm. both these roles to one god only namely the god Marduk. Um, but again, clearly, Enema Elish draws on earlier mythological traditions in Mesopotamia. That is certainly correct, yes. Mm. Very, very interesting. Yeah, that's 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 good to hear. Okay, so, uh, and that's Enema Elish, but what about Genesis 1? So, um, how would you say that they compare in these ways? Yeah, so that's, of course, 
not a straightforward thing. I, I should point out right away that, I mean, um, there is no full consensus on uh, the first creation account in Genesis in being in some way dependent on borrowing uh, from the Enuma Elish. It is an idea, as I mentioned, that was first articulated by scholars in the 19th century when for the first time the Enuma Elish became known. Uh, but it has not been accepted by all scholars. So there are scholars who say that the parallels are just not pronounced enough uh, to make these connections, establish these connections, and who uh, are more skeptical. But I personally believe that uh, the connections are close enough uh, to assume that uh, there is a link between these two texts. It's also very important, of course, and maybe I should start with that to point out the differences. So let me start off with the differences, which are very, very um, obvious, I would say. I mean, first of all, of course, the first creation account in Genesis is very short. Um, and it's important to note it is so short because it does not include any battles. So there are there is no young god who first has to defeat the forces of chaos uh, in visions of as a, as a feminine, chaotic, watery mass um, before being able to create the world as we know it. Uh, there are no earlier generations of gods. There's not this primeval world of, of, mm -hmm. of uh, Tiamat and Apsu and Anshakisha, Lahmulahamu. There's also not this world of the better known gods like Anu, Ea, Marduk, and so on. All there is is essentially one deity, um, namely yeah, the, uh, the god Yahweh, who is uh, credited with uh, being in charge of the creation process entirely on his own. Um, that said, though, in other regards, there are pronounced parallels. And uh, that begins with the first lines of the text about which we can perhaps talk a little bit later, uh, which um, where, where we find very similar ideas about what was there at the very beginning. In Genesis 2, you actually don't have uh, a creation out of nothing, so-called creatio ex nihilo, as this has been dubbed in Latin, even though this is sometimes the way the first line of Genesis is translated. Often you find the translation, in the beginning God created uh, the heavens and the earth, but that's not quite right. The Hebrew actually says something like, when God began to create the heaven and the earth. And then it describes the way, um, well, the cosmos looked like at this very point. And then you have this statement that uh, there was darkness uh, have, um, sort of over, over the, the deep or the sea. And the word for sea is tehom, which is very close and probably etymologically related to the to the word Tiamat um, and might be just a way of referring to the same thing. Of course, now no longer considered a deity, but uh, yeah, just a cosmic entity, namely some primeval sea. Um, and then there are references to the sky and uh, the earth, of course, that you also have in, in Amaelish. And then um, what you find afterwards is the creation of the world, um, somewhat similar to the way Mado creates the world once he has defeated Tiamat. Um, you have a lot of dividing things up. Um, uh, so um, the, the dome above is the sky and below it's the earth. Um, there's also an interesting parallel in that, um, I think on day four, um, God is said to create the stars as signs. And that's very unusual for the Bible because usually the Bible isn't too enchanted with astrology and uh, any other kind of 
oracular and ominous activities. But here it's said explicitly that the stars are supposed to serve as otot, Hebrew uh, plural of the word ot, which is sign. And that's exactly the same word as the Akkadian or Babylonian word um, itu or itato, which means sign in uh, the Babylonian language. So the function is very much the same. Um, the function of the stars is very much the same that the, the function of the stars is in the Babylonian tradition. There's also the kind of interesting feature that on day six, um, God creates human beings. Um, now, of course, there's no uh, reference at all to uh, human beings actually doing work or being being created from the blood of a slain God. This is all being edited out of the story, so to say. But it is still interesting that the creation of human beings in Enomaelish actually takes place on day, or not on day six, but in the sixth tablet. And well, as I mentioned, the function of human beings in the Babylonian tradition, not only in Omaelish, but also in many other myths, is to um, free gods from having to do labor. In the Bible, interestingly enough, on day seven, um, God rests. And that is, of course, also uh, an etiology of the Sabbath. It is an explanation why this is a day of rest mm. in the cultic calendar. No question about it. But it is still striking that here too, the creation of human beings is being followed by divine rest. And I do think this isn't really by chance. So that would be another fairly close parallel, I would say, uh, that exists uh, between these two stories. So the stories have a number of things in common. And I mean, this is not an argument I'm making, others have made it before. What I would say is there is a certain likelihood that the Judeans um, were familiar with this very, very widespread Babylonian myth um, and drew on it when coming up with a creation story of their own. But of course, in the process, uh, really modified it massively and essentially created more like something like more like a counter story than an adaptation almost. So they really turned some very central features and elements of the story around and and uh, came up with a very different rationale for the creation of the world. And and again, I mean, one where um, mythology is essentially eliminated and only one god is left. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's really interesting. So, uh, I mean, obviously, you know, a thousand people have written on this. And uh, I, just, I wanted to get your thoughts on here. I'll, I'll edit it in um, after here, but I just wanted to show you it, my screen. Let me know if you can't see well. Um, so basically, it's a little chart. Sorry. And it's basically got. It was an. It's an attempt to you know see, see the order of similarities here. So of course you have the rest after the creation of man, like you mentioned, but you also have luminaries and dry land and firmament and um, light being, I guess emanated and created. I don't know if that's worthy of a similarity or not, but it seems like there's a lot more similarities that um, is mentioned here. Do you, uh, I mean, I would assume that you've seen something like this before. Do you agree with these similarities or do you like think that they're being made too much or being pulled out of context? Or do you think that order is interesting for all these? Yeah, maybe I can start off because um I mean, I worked a little bit on the very first lines, and uh, what you have here at the very beginning um, is uh, your 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 point about the divine spirit 
creating cosmic matter. Um, and that's, I mean, something I have actually written about. Um, again, this is not something that everyone agrees upon, but maybe I can briefly elaborate on that. Okay. Um, this is about the very first lines of both these texts, the Enumaelish and Genesis. Um, and of course, first lines always matter. First lines is what everyone kind of mm, learns sure. by heart. I still know the first lines of the Greek epics, even though otherwise my Greek is, is really not that great anymore. <laughs> uh, but uh, this was the same in ancient times. We know from these school texts that the first lines were often quoted. And um, so, yeah, uh, these, these are actually probably, I mean, the, the first lines in, in, in Genesis among the most quoted and most discussed lines uh, probably yeah. in world literature. And I already pointed out that uh, there are, I mean, uh, there's this reference to the beginning, um, which um, in in the um, in Genesis is the Hebrew word Reshit, and it has a, a etymological parallel in the Babylonian text in Numa Elish in, in the claim that Apsu was the first one, the Reshtu. Both texts probably begin with a temporal clause with a when clause. So when God created, um, in the case of Numa Elish, when on high no name was given to the heavens, nor below was the earth called. That's another parallel here, namely this reference to the heavens. Um, mm -hmm. Shamu uh, or in, in Shamamu in Babylonian, Shamaim in the Hebrew text. So again, it's almost the same words. The earth is mentioned uh, by a different word in the Babylonian text, but it is still, of course, quite similar. And then there is a reference to the sea. Um, darkness hover, was was over the sea. It says, and uh, mm -hmm. the word for sea, Tehom in Hebrew, is very similar to the name of Tiamat. Um, which, which is the embodiment of this. He also note that uh, Tehom has no definite article. So a little bit as though it was actually a name. Um, usually in Hebrew, you have a definite article like the in English, but here you don't. Uh, yeah. So these are all actually really, in my view, pretty pronounced parallels. And I have identified yet another one, which again, I mean, you can debate whether it's uh, plausible or not. But... Um, there is the famous statement, also very important for Christian reinterpretations of this uh, Hebrew text. Uh, there is this reference to the divine Ruach, as it is called in Hebrew. So the Ruach Elohim, which is usually translated as the divine spirit, but some have also argued it's actually not the spirit, but it's rather a wind from God that was... Um, uh, that, 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 that was um, sweeping over the face of the waters. I think it is actually some kind of a spirit. Of course, Ruach initially is a word for wind, but it is the wind that then gets things in motion. And in this sense, it's a creative quality. I don't think that the word uh, or that the combination of words used here, uh, Ruach Elohim, a wind from God or wind of God makes sense. You have to translate it really as a spirit of God, a creative spirit of God is getting setting this whole creation process in motion at the very beginning mm. and here i find it interesting that in the noma elish you find associated with uh, the name of tiamat you find a reference to well an entity known as as mumu and this mumu again as i mentioned when i summarized the text is later on uh, this vizier of of apsu who is then slain and um associated with the Apsu, the, the cosmic entity. But Momu is also known, um, for instance, uh, in 
in the term beat mumi the house of mumu as a place where divine statues were created or rather born so in first millennium mesopotamia the, the term here refers to creative energy or spirit very much like ruach does in the in the hebrew bible and what i would argue for is that this very first line or the very first two lines of genesis really draw here on the first four lines in in Elish, where you have a number of terms that uh, yeah find correspondences in the hebrew text then for the remaining parallels that you had in your nice uh, graph i would also say again it's important not to engage in parallel mania i mean not to find parallels everywhere where don't, perhaps there aren't any uh, for instance in enumailish in uh, the creation of of animals and of of plant life is not is not is not described in Elish. so you don't have that uh, that's a difference so again it's also important to make it very clear that the two texts um are also profoundly different um and that whoever uh, authored the biblical creation account uh, probably also drew on other traditions he didn't just draw on Enumailish, but uh, you also had in mind other traditions, uh, traditions in which the emergence of plant life, uh, in which the, um, which yeah, the, the the birth of animals and things like that, likewise played a more important role. Yeah, yeah, that's really interesting. Um, uh, another similarity that's been proposed, which is, I mean, I guess it's kind of obvious that you know Tiamat is like he's split open, and then you have God in Genesis one. Um, you know, separating the waters and separating the 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 waters so that the land appears. Um, you know, and making the firmament and the lower waters, all that kind of stuff. So, do you think that is like meant to be a similarity there of of splitting the waters, just like they split Tiamat and in, uh, in, in Umale Elish, or is that just like a just a, a way that? creation is described in in the ancient Near East? What do you think about that? It's a less specific parallel because there are, of course, also many other creation accounts from Mesopotamia, also from Egypt, mm -hmm. and the splitting in, in, in part of, of heaven and earth occurs in many of these. But I, I would say, I mean, I, I, I read again also the first line of Enomaelish, when on high no name was given to the heavens, nor below was the earth called by name. So you find in Enomaelish on one hand, this idea of splitting Tiamat apart, which corresponds to the splitting apart of, of Earth and sky in, 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 in Genesis. Um, but you also find this idea of um, creation by naming in the very first line already. And that, of course, is also something that is very pronounced in Genesis. So uh, God speaks and through his word, these things then uh, happen. Um, so in my English has both these features of creation and the Bible has them as well. Again, these are not the only texts um, dealing with creation from the ancient world that have that. But it is, of course, yes, it is, I would say, yet another parallel. And I, I would say that it, it probably does matter. Later on, I mean, Marduk, when he receives these 50 names, that's essentially, yes, yet again, an, an act of naming that has a more has a deeper and, and almost ontological con implication. I mean, he he not only assumes the names of these other gods, but it, by mm -hmm. being named uh, with their names, he also assumes their qualities, essentially becomes these other gods, so that in the end, uh, he is all the other gods that existed before um, that. 
And then he becomes an almost, I mean, this is the kind of ironic thing. I mean, you could argue that Genesis 1 is an attempt to demythologize uh, ancient Babylonian um, tradition. So get rid of, of uh, myths of, of, of these many deities, of these many gods and all that. But you already have a demythologizing tendency in Elish itself. Only the process of, of, of it is being described within the text itself. So it tells the story of how first you do actually have many gods and you have a lot of chaos and a lot of battling and fighting and so on. But in the end, what you find at the end of the Enoma Elish is actually quite similar to what you find in, in Genesis 1. It is a world where essentially the only god who matters is Marduk and well, human beings have now been created and they take care of divine world and and that's that's this ideal setting that you have you also i mean in both cases have essentially um then a creation process at least at the end of it that's fundamentally um good um the you know my english doesn't speak out on that explicitly in in um in genesis you have these many statements throughout the whole story that uh, god saw it was good tough in hebrew that's not exactly the way the Babylonian story describes it, but it's essentially an ideal world that is created in the Babylonian epic of creation. And of course, I mean, then you need, <laughs> I mean, you need then, of course, an explanation. How then is it that the world as we know it is actually not perfect? And the second creation account in the Bible provides an explanation for that um, by saying, well, um, the, the, the sin came into the world when um, Adam and Eve ate from uh, the wrong tree. Um, and the rest of the primeval history explains then that human beings uh, engaged in murder and so on. And in Mesopotamia, you too, of course, have then other texts, other myths uh, that describe a, a different world. Um, in, uh, for instance, in, in the case of, of the flood stories uh, from Mesopotamia, you see how human beings mm -hmm. get on the nerves of the gods and behave inappropriately and are being punished. In another epic, the epic of Era, um, the order created by Marduk is dissolved and, and chaos ensues again. So you also then, uh, of course, need explanations of how things after this apparently very, very successful creation effort of the very beginning actually got wrong again and you have them but both in Noma Elish and in the first creation account in Genesis essentially at the end have a creation process that has been successfully completed and essentially leads to an ideal world where everything is great yeah 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 all good stuff there um last last thing I want to mention before uh, I um, move on to something else so you know I'm sure you've heard many scholars argue that Genesis 1 is something along the lines of God inaugurating his cosmic temple or something like that. Um, and then, of course, in Enuma Elish, you have a temple being built. Uh, do, you, do you see a, a parallel there? Or I mean, or maybe you don't think Genesis 1 is, is making that point? I would not see it. I think this is, I mean, it's a legitimate interpretation, but I don't see really evidence in the Hebrew text for it. It's not that uh, Genesis 1 says something like that the world then was the temple of God, the Hekal, sure. which it would have right. been in Hebrew. Now, I mean, I, I should, again, of course, point out, I speak to you here as an archaeologist, not as a Hebrew Bible scholar. I mean, I have done my Hebrew and so on, but uh, <laughs> I mean, your, your viewers should be aware of the limitations of what I, I can say yeah. with authority. Uh, but to me, that's a secondary interpretation. Um, mm -hmm. I wouldn't say that uh, the cosmos, as it is described uh, in Genesis 1, is a temple. The temple is then a later thing. Of course, there is a temple in Jerusalem. It becomes very, very important 
and um, the way it's described sometimes may also have uh, ancient Near Eastern antecedents. Mm. But it's not the same thing. I mean, there is no reference to city also, for instance. I think that's quite sure. interesting. And that's really a contrast to uh, what you find in, in the Babylonian epic creation. The first city is mentioned in Genesis 4. Um, and it's actually quite interesting that uh, that's a city built by well, either Cain or a son of Cain. And uh, it's not such a great thing altogether. I mean, it's it's uh, so there's a certain um, skepticism, perhaps almost. And then, of course, in at the end of the primeval history, you have as the great city. Yeah, we have a reference to Babel, mm-hmm. and I would say that the story of Babel and the Tower of Babel that you find in Genesis 11 um, at the end of the primeval history is again an attempt to deal with the experience by the Judeans, probably in exile, of encountering this great city of Babylon, where they stayed for at least 70 years, and many of them actually longer. And it is again, though, a counter story. I mean, it's a story that, whereas in in Maelish, Babylon is really the pinnacle of civilization, and uh, this centripetal idea that the gods and everyone moves towards Babylon, and it's the center. In the Bible, of course, it's the opposite. There's a centrifugal movement away from Babylon. People um, suddenly speak no longer the same language and they are spread out all over the globe. Um, and, um, well, the, the ruler of Babylon and the people in Babylon, they engage in this mistaken attempt to build this tower and want to be high up uh, where God is, which is all bad. So um, I do think this too may well draw also on Elish, as it probably draws on the well, uh, historical experience of the Judeans actually being in Babylon. So there's a connection, but it is not a kind of a positive connection. It's it's criticism of the Babylonian tradition um, that is expressed here. Yeah, 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 I appreciate that. All right, so you, you obviously dug into a lot of the stuff that you've argued in your papers. Is there is there anything else in your papers that you argued as far as the similarities or contrast between Genesis 1 and Emilish that you wanted to bring up here? No, I think basically I've made the points I've made in this paper and there are details I could now go into, but I think that would be too technical. So um, the, the new point I made in my uh, in my in my paper that uh, I, I published some 10 years ago um, really was about uh, the first lines of these epics. And I mean, uh, the importance of this would, would lie in the fact that here, what I would argue for is that the, the parallels are so close, really, on a, on a not word by word, but but on a level that I think requires a knowledge of whoever authored the first creation account in in Genesis, a knowledge of the actual Babylonian text. So, mm-hmm. and that would most likely have happened in Babylon during the exile. Um, again, that's of course still an hypothesis, and um, it's not like full sentences from the Enumaelish are quoted in the biblical creation account. So. The problem with all these comparisons, of course, is always really one uh, of plausibility. How how close do such parallels have to be in order to assume that there really is a connection? Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. All right. Uh, so uh, a, a big point here that, you know, many might not understand and that might be depending on, you know, how people date the, the Genesis text here. But um, could you talk about the, the Babylonian exile and, you know, when the Judeans encountered Babylon and on like on a grand scale, uh, could you talk about uh, why that's significant here? Yeah. So first it's important to keep in mind that 
historians do not believe that the Bible was written sort of in a in a chronological sequence, so that the oldest texts would be the ones about creation, and then as you move on in the Bible with the patriarchs and then the period of, of kings, etc., etc., that the text was written in that very sequence. They argue that um, you have these different segments of texts, and and that they might have that some that describe very early history might actually be written fairly late. Um, this is, of course, uh, an issue uh, that led to an enormous amount of debate and a full consensus, I think, is not inside. That said, I would also argue that most Bible scholars agree that um, the segment in the Bible that is usually described as, as the priestly source, um, and Genesis 1 would belong to it, um, was probably composed during the Babylonian exile or in the immediate aftermath of that exile for a variety of reasons I can't get into here. This priestly source focuses on matters important for priests, such as, well, priestly ritual and so on, but also, uh, I mean, genealogies and so on. And it's interesting that um, in the subscript to the first creation account, um, the whole thing is described as the genealogies of heaven and earth. So the word here, the Hebrew word toledot for genealogies is, is one that's typical for the priestly author. So it is a broad consensus that this uh, account goes back to this priestly source. And um, so for all sorts of reasons, um, then it's likely that this is a fairly late um, account. And uh, we know, of course, that the Judeans were, in fact, in Babylon. I mean, this is historically um, proven. There's no question about that, that the Bible gets this entirely right, that um, Nebuchadnezzar II uh, conquered Jerusalem in 597 BCE uh, and then um, brought a significant uh, number of people from the elite to Babylon. And uh, 10 or 11 years later, 586, uh, had to reconquer the city uh, and then destroyed large parts of it and deported again significant amounts of, of Judites, both from Jerusalem and uh, also from the countryside, to Babylonia and to Babylon. We have um, a few years ago, new texts showed up on the antiquities market from a place named Beit Yahudu, literally that means in Babylonia, Babylonian, the, the house of the Judeans. That was a, a small town or city in the Babylonian countryside, wow. it was named after the Judeans. Um, these texts are dated to the time of Nebuchadnezzar and his successors. So it's very clear that this was one of those settlements where the deported Judeans lived. But we also know that the Judean elite was really in Babylon. Um, they um, were kept as hostages in the temple of Nebuchadnezzar. Um, we know that because we have found tablets documenting rations given to King Jehoiakim, the last king of Judah, and some of his family members. So his name is mentioned in those documents. These documents are not literary texts, not ideologically charged, they're just everyday documents. They survived because they were written on clay. Um, mm. So there's no question that uh, the king and his family, and certainly also other members of the Judean elite uh, during the 6th century BCE, uh, stayed in Babylon, in the palace of Nebuchadnezzar. And what I would now argue for is that, I mean, the, the palace of Nebuchadnezzar is very close to the temple of Marduk in the center of the city of Babylon. 
there were these major festivals when the god Marduk would have been carried around in the form of a statue, especially the New Year festival, um, when the Babylonian epic of creation, the Inumayelish, would actually be recited. The Inumayelish was studied by everyone, as I mentioned, as we know from the school text. So um, the Book of Daniel, even though usually dated to late period, has certain features that I think point also towards some segments being pretty early. And it says that um, the Judeans in exile uh, received rations, in Babylon, which we know is correct, we have the texts, and also learned the writings, uh, the script and, and the literature of the Chaldeans, that is the Babylonians. That would be exactly some something like the Babylonian epic creation. So in my view, those who argue that it's unlikely that the Judeans actually would ever encounter the Enoma Elish really um, have no point. It just is extremely likely that they would have encountered the Enoma Elish while in exile. And of course, now you have to imagine what was the situation of these Judeans. They were far from home. They apparently yearned to go home again, but somehow they had to, well, make sure that they wouldn't forget who they were. They had to, not to create their identity, but to create an identity in exile that, that would make sure that they would not forget where they came from. And yeah. one way for them to do this, I think, was that they drew on traditions um, that had circulated in Mesopotamia for a long time. Of course, you must also imagine, I mean, they must have been extremely impressed by this super large metropolis and these super large temples and temple towers and palaces and so on. And also by this very, very ancient text, the Babylonians claimed, of course, that they had access to the earliest times. They claimed that this was actually the Babylonian epic of creation, an, an objective account of early history. So they, they probably thought, okay, we cannot discount this altogether, but we will rewrite this stuff and we actually know what really happened. And so what they did was then that they integrated their own ideas about their own god and by that time probably already sort of moving towards monotheistic conception and Yahweh alone being in charge of history and so on and they um, combined it with Babylonian ideas of about the very beginnings of time and you know Maelish was such a text and Genesis 1 might be the, the product of this amalgamation of different traditions mm. so I mean, and an extremely revolutionary one for that, of course. So I mean, it's always a problem. And then scholars of who, when, when, when it's argued, well, that the Bible is just plagiarized Babylonian myth, that's, of course, absolutely not the case. It is a completely new text that is being created here with a completely new idea about God and uh, his relationship to human beings and, and all that. Um, but it is not coming out of nowhere. It draws on earlier traditions. Very, very interesting. Yeah, that, that definitely is important to, to note there. Uh, so have you have you thought much into what would have been, what a, sorry, have you thought much what it would be like as an Israelite or, or um, a Judean who's in Babylon and, um, you know, the writing a text that says, hey, Marduk didn't do that, all that. It was actually, it was you know, Elohim, Yahweh, who did it. Um, and and wouldn't someone like that get in trouble or do you think that Babylon didn't have that kind of control? It's a good question. I mean, I think these are internal discourses. This was, I mean, these texts, um, these biblical texts, I mean, the, the ones that probably modified later on, and this is not the original version also, but the ones that may have been composed um, during this time were not meant for broad circulations. I mean, these were these were small communities that were communicating within themselves, I would I would think. 
they didn't show these things to any Babylonian. And in, in these texts are written in Hebrew. And um, while everyone would speak Aramaic, which is somewhat related to Hebrew, mm. people wouldn't really understand Hebrew in Babylon. True. So uh, I don't think they would have gotten in trouble. Also, um, I, I mean, for the for the Babylonians of that time, it was clear they were the masters of the universe, so to speak. So they did not really have to fear the Judeans who were mm. the minor people um, whose elites had, had just been deported to their capital uh, hostages. And yeah. I don't think they particularly would have particularly cared. But it is an interesting question. Uh, I mean, the problem is, I mean, they would have written not on clay. This is why we have nothing uh, on clay. Um, I mean, it would be great if we ever found anything like that. It would also prove some of the ideas I have outlined here. But they, <laughs> but they would probably have written these things um, on parchment and papyrus, on scrolls, mm. and those don't survive. Um, yeah. So it would have been a different type of discourse, also simply with respect to the to the medium of writing. The Babylonians write on wrote on on clay tablets. The the Hebrews would have written on on scrolls made of of papyrus or parchment. Which doesn't survive in the soil of Iraq, and and so we have nothing of that left. Mm. Um, yeah, yeah, that's good stuff. All right, so uh, you you mentioned that um, the, the afterlife of Enumelilish um, might be interesting to talk about. Um, also, um, from Assyria to Palmyra to the writings of the Neoplatonic philosopher Damascus. Yes, I'm not pronouncing that right. Most likely, uh, what do you what do you have to say about that, and um, why do you think it's important here? Yeah, I mean, I don't want to go too much into details, complicated stuff, mm-hmm. um, but I do think it's important. I mean, again, there's this argument that you know my English wasn't really that important, and that it was of a marginal text recited once a while in a temple, and therefore the Judeans were unlikely to encounter it. And I just think that's wrong. And um, one argument uh, why this is wrong is the fact that we can show that in other places in the ancient Near East and even in the Eastern Mediterranean, Inuma'ilish actually was known. Uh, it was known in Assyria. Um, we have evidence for an Assyrian version in the early 7th century BCE, which replaced Marduk with the uh, Assyrian god Ashur and the city of Babylon with the Assyrian city of Ashur. So suddenly in the Assyrian version, Marduk was no longer the hero, but Ashur. Uh, but we can see here how the Assyrians adapted the Babylonian epic of creation, turned it into something else, which in some regards would be similar to what the Judeans did. But the Judeans modified it much more than the Assyrians did. But still, I mean, you see here, this could happen. It did happen. We have actually clay tablets inscribed with the text of this Assyrian version of the Babylonian epic of creation. And we also have evidence for a reception of the Enoma Elish in in the Levant, so in Syria, in places west of Mesopotamia, including in Palmyra, uh, this city, this caravan city in, in the Syrian desert, uh, much of which was destroyed by ISIS in the past years, where in the temple of Baal, an uh, important deity, uh, a relief was found that seems to show a scene really drawing on Nemaelish with, with uh, Baal, Marduk, fighting a snake-like monster, uh, must be Tiamat. In fact, together with his son, in this case, Nabu, not alone, uh, but it's evidently 
you know, my Elish theology and, and mythology on which the people in Palmyra draw. We have evidence from the city of Edessa, um, which is near modern Turkish city of, of Urfa in southern Turkey, uh, in the form of Syriac texts from the 6th century CE, so very, very late, about pagan people in that city uh, celebrating pagan rites on the days of the Akito festival when um, we know from Babylon the Inamayelish was recited. Um, and uh, yeah, somehow celebrating the ancient myths. This is very likely another adaptation of the Babylonian epic creation. And then we have um, a very interesting work by this philosopher whom, whom you named. And I mean, he's not very well known. His name is Damascus, but he was the last director of the Platonic Academy in Athens before it was shut down in 529 by the Byzantine Emperor Justinian. And he wrote a book uh, on first principles. And in this book, he collects evidence from a variety of mythological traditions for how, well, other people believed the world had come into being. And in this context, he gives us a paraphrase of the first lines of Inoma Elish that's very accurate. So he mentions um, Apsa and Tiamat, he mentions even Momu, Lachmu, Lachamu, Anshakisha, and all these early deities are all mentioned by name, slightly contorted. So instead of Lachmu, it's Dache, and instead of Ansha, it's Asaros, um, and Tiamat becomes Taute. But it's very clearly the same tradition. He has the genealogies right. He claims this goes back to work by a student of Aristotle from the late 4th century BCE, a student of Aristotle by the name of Eudemus, which would indicate that already at a fairly early period in time, the Greeks actually had a fairly good idea about the Enoma Elish as well. All this shows that Enoma Elish was actually a really widely known text. This also means that my scenario that this that Genesis 1 might have been composed in, in exile by the Babylonians, by the Judeans were in exile in Babylon, doesn't have to be necessarily correct in order to still claim there could be connection. It is also possible that uh, the Judeans simply knew this text because it was so well known all over the Levant after they came back from the exile or wherever. I mean, they might have encountered it also in some other context. I still think the the likelihood that they were confronted with it in 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 during the time of the exile is mm. that is in the sixth century BCE is 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 pretty um, substantial, but it's it's at any rate it's very clear that Inuma Elish really was a super important text that um, was studied all over the place and not just in Babylonia or Syria, but really also in Syria and and even in the Greek world. Yeah, yeah, that's actually kind of pretty crazy how. Something, something so ancient when they didn't have all these papers or technology or anything like that, we're able to get a document out to, to all over the place. That's pretty crazy. Um, so a, a thought that um, a lot of scholars have debated is, you know, where did the Israel, like, you know, it, it, the, the concepts in Genesis 1 are, are obviously very similar to a lot of different texts, whether it be Egyptian texts or a New Middle East or whatever. Um, when when they found a new Milish, it was like, oh, you know, it's obviously this 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 might even been where it came from, right? Uh, you know, you talked about the parallel parallel mania, and they're like, oh, this is definitely it. But then you have another group of scholars that come along and say, oh, well, it's actually more similar to the Egyptian texts, and uh, we can talk about that. I mean, have you have you 
uh, studied much of how it's similar to Egyptian creation accounts in regards to the order of the creation and um, the themes. You know, there's no like, there's only like one or two Egyptian accounts where there's actually any conflict. Kind of similar to how Genesis, there's no conflict. Um, you know, and there's similar ideas of a creation or like separating and like a primordial mound, like in Genesis uh, day three. Um, there's just a few, but do you do you think that you know the Egyptian accounts might have played some effect here, or I mean, did they, you know, have Egyptian accounts in Mesop or uh, in Babylon when they were there? What do you think about all that? Yeah, I mean, this brings up again this issue that um, the parallels that have are listed might still not convince your viewers and and haven't convinced all scholars, of course, that there is a link between Genesis one and the you know, Maelish in particular. Um, and it is, of course, true that some Egyptian uh, creation accounts, I'm not an Egyptologist, but I, I did some, I studied a little bit when I was in university, that um, some Egyptian texts have parallels with the creation story in, in, in Genesis 1 as well. I mean, and among them is this idea of a primeval um, watery mass that you have actually in many right. creation accounts all over the world. So you have in Egyptian, you have this idea of noon, that's this this primeval ocean that um, is, of course, somewhat reminiscent of the situation also in Inumailish with Tiamat and Apsu, um, and it brings to mind the Tehom, the, the sea or the deep in, in, the gen in Genesis 1. Um, you have um, then, though, I mean, you have, like in Inumailish in Egypt, a number of, of creation accounts where a number of divine generations emerge from one another. So the creator god Atom, uh, sometimes it's a different one, uh, bringing forth uh, new generations of gods. And those generations are then associated with certain cosmogonic features. So uh, you have Shu is air and Tefnut is moisture and Geb and Nut representing earth and heaven. Um, so you have that. Um, and then you have also different accounts is, for instance, uh, an account fairly late from around 700 BCE or so um, about the creation by Ptah, who, who creates by thought and word. And, and uh, that's one that's also sometimes compared to the biblical creation account. To me, first, I would say that when it comes to the details, I would still say that um, for instance, these first lines, um, the creation of human beings, that's where the Mesopotamian parallels are just more pronounced. And the second thing is, I mean, then that the historical scenario of the Judeans really coming into, I mean, becoming what, what becoming Jews, so to speak, uh, finding their identity, that that is something best, I think, associated with Mesopotamia, with the Babylonian exile and its aftermath. Again, I mentioned that we have clear evidence for the Judeans being in Babylon, living in Mesopotamia at a time when uh, almost all uh, historians of the Hebrew Bible believe uh, the, the Hebrew Bible was fundamentally main segments of the Hebrew Bible were, were composed, of course, drawing on earlier materials, also clear. I mean, it's not all coming out of nowhere. And these traditions came also from the West, of course. But considering this historical situation, I would again say that just makes it more likely that the Babylonian connection is the one that mm -hmm. matters more. I would also say, I mean, the, the whole primeval history, that is Genesis 1 to 11, uh, from creation to 
the Tower of Babel is set in Mesopotamia. And other segments of the primeval history clearly have Mesopotamian and not Egyptian parallels. The most clear example is, of course, the story of the flood. That is a case where I think it's very hard to deny uh, some kind of genetic relationship because in the story of, um, for instance, um, how the Ark of Noah lands on a mountain and then the birds are being sent out and Noah sacrificing um, to God afterwards, all that, all these very specific um, motifs with the birds, with the sacrifice, all that has parallels in uh, very ancient Mesopotamian traditions that were still very well known in the first millennium BC. So in this case, and there is a priestly version of that as well as there is a Yahvistic one. So um, all these um, parallels cannot be explained by um, claiming there's some Egyptian parallel because there is no such Egyptian flood story. It just doesn't exist. In Genesis 10, you find um, a genealogy of the people, a sort of table of nations, uh, listing lots and lots of, of different nations in quotation marks. That's very much the one sort of based on the worldview of, of Mesopotamia, Babylonia in the 6th, maybe in the 5th centuries BCE, not an Egyptian worldview. So within this context of the primeval history, again, it just seems more likely that um, it's prim primarily Babylonian material. There were actually Egyptians in Babylon, and I mean, even earlier already in, in Assyria, I mean, you did have Egyptians there, and this is a, a time of, of great empire. So uh, there is an interaction between these two um, great uh, kingdoms. Um, so it is not entirely excluded that um, the... Uh, Judeans might also have encountered some Egyptian um, ideas in uh, while while in Babylonia, um, and of course it is very interesting that um, the story of uh, the 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 Israelites in Egypt um, seems also kind of to foreshadow the Babylonian exile in some way. So this is a very good model for what the. Uh, what the Judeans experienced then in, in Babylonia, these seem to be older traditions. So uh, Moses is a figure uh, much, much older than, than the Babylonian exile, but they draw on it. Uh, I mean, these Egyptian, uh, these stories about the sojourn of the Israelites in, in Egypt, and they probably modify them then in Babylon uh, with an eye on, on their situation in, in exile. I would argue, I mean, this is actually something that I think could be studied more by specialists on, in the Hebrew Bible. I think that's an interesting point that, that would need more work. Hmm. Very, very cool. Awesome. Yeah, yeah. It's love, love to get your thoughts there um, from, from our scholars looking, working in the field. Uh, but yeah, so that's all I got for you. Uh, wonderful, wonderful thoughts, and I appreciate all you said here. Um, is there any any last words, uh, anything that you want to share as far as your work that, you know, something you're working on that um, you want people to know about or any books you're writing that want, want people to check out? Well, I think, I mean, people uh, on this podcast have now listened long enough to my, my ramblings, coherent or incoherent, <laughs> throughout this one hour, so I leave it at that. But if they want to read something I've written uh, on an unrelated topic, actually, um, then uh, they can actually check out my recent book on Assyria, the rise and fall of the world's first empire, uh, which to some extent also deals with, I mean, there is a chapter uh, at the end that deals with Assyrian, uh, the Assyrian impact on the Bible. It's mostly sort of political impact that this encounter with the great imperial kings of Assyria had 
on the authors of uh, an early version of the book of Deuteronomy. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not primarily um, about uh, biblical issues, but um, maybe just to finish, uh, for me and as an archaeologist, it's important to read the Bible also with respect to how we look at Mesopotamia, the Syria, the Babylonian, how we write the history of those uh, states, uh, because it is the perspective of, well, the, the imperial subjects of those who are subjugated who are often uh, marginalized, who are deported. So the, the victims of, of the imperialism in which both the Assyrians and the Babylonians were engaged, and even though the, the final version of the Bible as we have it is, is certainly redacted and um, is, is not objective history uh, in any sort of specific sense, it's still, I think, a very important resource for us to understand better how others actually looked at Assyria and Babylonia um, while there were the predominant powers in that region. Hmm. Yeah. yeah. All right. All right. Awesome. Yeah. Everybody definitely go check out Techgunner's book. Um, you know, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Uh, thank you so much for coming on. and I'd love to have you again. But uh, thank you so much. And uh, I hope you have a great rest of your night or day. I guess yeah, you it, is, it is night where you are, right? <laughs> uh, well, it's getting there, but uh, not yet. We are in the same time zone. So yeah, right. Yeah. It's, it's not right. yet dark. Yeah. There you go. All right. Uh, yeah. But once again, uh, thank you so much and hope you have a good night. My pleasure. Good night.